two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and today I am joined by Cristo Bajer. He is the Chief Technology Officer for the country of Estonia and a strong believer in a decentralized, non-monolithic, microservice-oriented government architecture. He has been an international leader in government transformation for a number of years, and a few months ago, he published his newest vision paper titled Next Generation Digital Government Architecture. And today, Crystal will tell us more about that paper and answer questions from our mailbag. Hello, Crystal, and thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you. Yes, it was a bunch of very complicated letters and words that you put in the row there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little a little bit of a tongue twister to read it all out, but uh, this is why you're here today. Is you're going to help, you know, straighten it out for us. Yeah, definitely. That's fine. Now, from my understanding, much of the influence of your new vision paper is based on Conway's law, which states that organizations who design systems are constrained to produce designs which are copies of the communication structures of these organizations, which is yet again another incredible tongue twister. So can you <laughs> clarify that for us a little bit and why understanding Conway's law is so important to your vision paper? Uh, this is a very good question. You're very right that Conway's law is one of the sort of pillars of getting to this vision. The core understanding of Conway's law, really, it's, it's all about the fact that everything changes. And most of the system designs, not just in government, but also in private sector, often assume that everything is sort of remains static, that there are some new features added, but it's most, mostly static. But the reality is really, really different, that everything constantly changes. And if, if you don't take into account the fact that your organization can change over time, then the systems themselves will become outdated as a result. So, uh, like... We've seen this in Estonia as well. Uh, when we've desi designed a new kind of information system uh, and it suddenly, over time, it becomes an annoyance. It doesn't become annoyance because the technology is somehow worse. You're still using web browsers. You're still use filling forms. You're still sort of having to navigate uh, the user interface. But for some reason, be people become annoyed because something has changed. The organization is built a little different. The process has slightly changed over time and the information system by itself doesn't map to it anymore. And so the core principle of Conway's law really is that you have to keep in mind that whatever you're designing, you always have to take into account that nothing really is permanent, even though sometimes in governments it tends to be. So I, I really think that this is a core principle to start off from because uh, like, if you do any different, then you're just going to be stuck over time and you have to rebuild everything from the ground up. And uh, I think that in terms of next generation government architecture, you really have to sort of build those smaller sort of modules that are cooperating between one another and then you can switch the modules up. Then some of the maybe processes remain same for a long time, but uh, you still have to keep in mind that nothing is permanent. And uh, the idea of something being permanent is an illusion. It reminds me a little bit, I have this saying that I use, and now that you're here, I'd like for you to tell me how wrong I am or how right I am, because I think it <laughs> yes. relates. 
um, I have this saying that goes, government is an institution that's designed to spend five years developing a program that will last 20 years. And that mentality is no longer relevant in the 21st century. It's about agility. It's about being able to, to, to fail forward and all that. Would you say that that's accurate in terms of the importance of Conway's law as a, into your vision paper? I think this is a good question there. I don't think that the core concept of what you're saying would be wrong. Um, we always have to take into account the span of when something needs to change or would change. I mean, if, if we look at the, an average citizen, their expectations for life and their well-being are going to be relatively similar throughout their life. So uh, it's, it's the government's duty to map out their strategies to sort of support this kind of their, their hopes and, and desires. And this doesn't change as frequently as organizations themselves do. There are certain things, obviously, that shake things up really, really quickly, uh, such as as we've seen with COVID-19. It's like you suddenly see that you have to change things around immediately in order to start sort of functioning and sort of deal with the risks that are, are coming therein. But most of the stuff, most of the focus in terms of government strategies, uh, government strategy by itself for its core principles for the citizens doesn't really have to change as frequently. But you need, in order to build a good government strategy for digitalization or otherwise, you need to keep in mind that only the core principles are the things that don't really change. If your environment changes, then you need to keep these things into account. I mentioned failing forward a moment ago. Would you say that that is relevant for the government as well, that it has to learn to fail forward? And if so, how does that change the relationship maybe with the media? Because when Facebook or when Twitter or whatever, when one of these new services releases a new application, they're able to make changes right away if there's a bug. They're, they're built for that agility. But when government releases something, they don't have that agility built in. So it becomes a scandal, it becomes a giant failure, a waste of government resources and things of that nature because the mistake lasts for so long before you can fix it. I, I think this is a good point. Um, we've encountered this as well. I think that there is some kind of expectation set by the citizens or the general public overall that assumes that government should be perfect at all times and all the systems that are being done, that every single cent of taxpayers' money is being used for the right purpose. Uh, but, and, and this obviously has led to a situation where people are more afraid of making mistakes, So, which means that they're falling back to their conventional patterns and conventional expectations and the old school way of doing things just to be safe. There's, uh, I suppose, as a result, there's also less this kind of exploratory design, you now finding new ways of doing these things, uh, which is something obviously that we are also taking into account and that we at least have to take into account. But I do think that uh, when we've talked uh, to our own government regarding this, it, it's not just about, you know, creating an environment where you are just failing uh, or just failing fast, which is something that has often been said regarding uh, agile methods of development, but also failing safe. So, so when you are creating a scenario where you can fail, then the entire concept of failing in terms of in that scenario, it should be still safe. You have to take into account that if you go wrong, what, what is going to be your plan B, how you're going to handling this? Because really, if, if we look at even in Estonia's own roadmap, the various systems that we've done that have at least internally in our own media have gotten attention for 
uh, as a result of failing or causing immense, uh, like blowing up the budget compared to what the original estimate was, then we've seen that this wasn't the problem that they failed. The problem was that they failed in such a huge amount. And that's, that's the main issue that, uh, like, in, I, I don't at least believe that the general public would be bothered if you're failing in smaller amounts, as long as in the end, you're going to create a better solution for everybody. And I don't th really think that it's going to ever create any kind of ripple effect just by having this uh, focus there. But I think that it doesn't, it isn't being done because everybody is sort of afraid of failure. Or, or doesn't like, or, or already thinks once they are financing a solution that already thinks that they know the solution when reality is that they just have a problem. They don't really know the solution yet. So um, I do think that a shift in mindset has to happen, but this is not an expectation for the general public. It's for the expectation for the mindset of product leaders and owners uh, in the government that have to realize that if I'm planning things and the whole roadmap, if I'm planning it, with smaller steps, if I'm running more proof of concepts, if I'm uh, running or trialing certain solutions in a smaller communities, such as just a single city or single town, rather than the whole nation at once, then we can easily pivot. We can easily see what the right way would be and, and what not really not. And this is not just an expectation just for the technology. This is the expectation, I think, for everybody that is uh, responsible for building those systems or solving those problems. I remember once a public servant, a high-ranking public servant who was a transformative public servant uh, talking about pilot projects and how they can be a bit of a double-edged sword in that they allow for the government to try new things, but in a very safe way because they have a shelf life. The pilot project is slated to last six months, a year or whatever. And you know what? If we don't like it or if it's too difficult or whatever, you know, we're just going to jettison it all, all together and go back to the well and, and stick with our old ways of doing things. Can you talk about the value of pilot projects within the context of the next generation uh, government architecture? I think that pilots and proof of concepts and actually building stuff that you can touch that you can actually try out, test against uh, or test with your customers and your citizens. I think it's incredibly valuable. Um, if, for example, if, if we take into the uh, focus, my own paper, this is like a visionary paper. It talks about a lot of hypotheses. It opens up a lot of discussions, but the next step really should be that we should have multiple use cases, multiple sort of trials to see what works and what really doesn't. And then at the next phase, we can sort of then see based on this, what the actual roadmap should be in order to uh, scale this up for the whole country, supposedly. So I think that if we look at private sector, if you organize an event that in one hand has a lot of discussions and a lot of presentations regarding what the next way of building architecture could be, what would be the next way to automate your deploy processes, what are the next sort of interesting new technologies to use in order to uh, take the next step for your organization in private or public sector, then you will see that it will still attract a lot of interest. But if you then have on the side the second event that talks about actual use cases, practices, actual examples of how something was done so that you can get a better sense of it, then the interest for this second event is much, much greater 
because everybody wants to see the success stories, actual practical success stories, and also to talk about what actually failed and why it failed. Because I think that evolutionarily, we have uh, learned so much by trying, failing, trying again. If we look at kids, obviously, then you see that kids don't learn a bunch of theory and then just do it perfect. They look at all the building blocks, look at the, whatever it is they want to achieve, and then they try and they fail and then try again. Sometimes they will get hurt. Sometimes they are upset about this and throw the blocks all around the room. But in the end, this is how they're actually getting to the end result. And it, it, it's weird to say that we have something to learn from how kids themselves learn and actually achieve results. But reality really is that we should encourage this kind of environment. We should have more trials, more sort of little projects to sort of give us these sparks for new ideas and uh, new results. I guess I asked, I think I asked my question incorrectly because I, I, I do agree with you. You do need a testing type of environment to try new things. But I think the essence of the comment this public servant was making is like wearing a wig. You have an, an established, you have a person or an organization that really wants to try red hair. But instead of dyeing their hair red by changing the person and who they are and how they do things, they just put on a red wig on just to see what it looks like. And if they don't like it a week from now or six months from now, they can easily take it off. They're not officially committed with a pilot project because once again, they can easily take it out of their DNA or take it off their head. Can you speak a little bit more to that perhaps? Uh, I think, imagine the opposite example. Imagine where they suddenly, instead of trying out the wig, instead they create an environment where suddenly everybody is dyed red. And then everybody is running around with their permanent red hair and everybody realizes, that, well, this is not actually what we wanted. So it takes a long time just to get rid of it. So I think that the wig is a good example. You're trying out a new kind of solution that is relatively cheap. It did cost a little bit. Maybe you ordered more than one, maybe some are curly, some are like straight, just to try out which which would actually work. But reality is that if you don't like it, you get rid of it. So yes, you're going to lose a bit of money, but that's just the money of one to three weeks, rather than the whole organization suddenly being tied red for the long term. And I, I think that it's, it is a healthy mindset. I think that we have to keep this in mind because we don't really know until we're actually using something. This is why testing any kind of solution with the real person that's going to use it is so important. Like even like having the smartest guy in the world, they might not actually know how the end user is going to use something. So we actually have to test out this wig on that person and to see if they are actually going to like it or not. So yeah, I am, I think that in terms of next generation architecture as well, running those kind of proof of concepts, running those uh, kind of trials is going to be very, very important. And the roadmap where we are at the moment is also full of those small little examples where a virtual assistant in a chatbot form is going to try to solve a problem for you, like in a very small scope. You, you don't talk like the example that we're talking at the, at the moment uh, or planning at the moment is related to car crash. So if you end up in an accident on the road, then you are not exactly sure if you should call the police. But you would essentially take, uh, like, uh, get in contact with the government and ask a question like, you know, I had a car crash, what should I do? And the government then is able to sort of make sure that this data gets to the right authorities. But then it's also going to ask you certain questions. Did anyone get hurt? No, no one got hurt. Okay, Did any, was there any private property damage other than the cars? 
No? Okay, then you don't really need to uh, call out the police. You just need to have insurance companies exchange information and then be done with it. Uh, if there's a, an argument with the other person, then make sure you take photographs from the scene and so on and so forth. Like, it's a very, very simple, very small scope. So if, uh, if you then use this chatbot and ask another question, if you ask, for example, the question like, you know, um, uh, what are my social benefits? And the chatbot doesn't really know the answer yet. Then it just, it's going to redirect you to the website where you can browse it. It's less convenient, but a small scope was already solved with the help of virtual assistant. While the bigger scope is still unmapped and it's going to happen over time. So uh, if, I really think that you should try out the real solution with the real citizen as soon as possible. So put, uh, have them wear the red wig rather than just have the government official red, uh, wear the red wig and think if the citizen would like it. Have the citizen wear the red wig and then get their opinion and then maybe dye it different color for their actual life. Something else that is heavily present in your vision paper is this idea of monoliths. It's even, I put it in your introduction earlier, but I'm not a software engineer and I really tried to understand the context of what you were referring to in the paper. Now, am I wrong in thinking that that what you mean is with these big and these are essentially big and heavy enterprise systems that offer little and flexibility. Is, is that what you mean by monoliths? Yeah, uh, this is quite correct. This is uh, like a very traditional way of describing a monolith. Uh, there are, of course, other s certain features that you can add to this that sort of explain it a little bit more. So you have a large system and you want to change a part of this large system. Now, uh, if you want to change the part of this uh, very large system, in order to change a small part of it, you need to understand the whole. It's a very monolithic problem. Like, you just want a little, 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 small change uh, to be implemented, but you have to understand everything. And you have to rely on the whole technology stack that is tied to this large hole. It makes it very expensive to maintain, which means that if you have this large system, then you need to assure that you have the developers that are able to speak the language, and then you have developers that are able to understand the whole scope of it. And then once you're actually running the procurements, the engineering companies are going to say that, hey, you know, this is too complicated. Let's start it over again. It's going to be much more expensive, but they're going to build it ground up and you will end up likely with another monolith. The alternative there is, and why my paper focuses on monoliths versus microservices, or actually a path between those two, because it isn't a, a direct transition. There's a, there are like these uh, service-oriented architecture in the middle, and then uh, so on and so forth. But the, the focus in my paper is that you need to still you can still design huge systems, but those huge systems should co consist of smaller domains that are autonomous. So if you are upset with a single domain. Just like if you would be upset with a single role or a worker in your company, you can replace that worker. So you can just find a better technology that does that same little thing for your whole organization. And then you can maybe even scale up based on this. So you realize, for example, that you have a, a small section of a large infrastructure or a large information system that is dealing with, uh, for example, communication and email communication. So they are sending out a lot of emails. If, if you understand that you are... Um, it's too slow, then you will just have more of those microservices and you just scale them up instead of scaling up the whole monolith, which would happen if you're dealing with the whole monolithic system. If monolithic system is slow in any part, in order to make that part faster, you need to make multiples of those monoliths and scale up the whole infrastructure rather than just a small part of it. So imagine a company that is trying to run and they realize that they are dealing with a lot of requests from public media. 
And then because they're dealing with a lot of public requests related to media, you have to duplicate everybody in the organization, including engineers, including maybe cleaners, which makes no sense. Uh, it becomes unmaintainable. So, and this is why in a lot of situations like this, most of the organizations just decide to start over from scratch because they think that this would be cheaper and then everything will be good again. When in reality, if you want to be cost sensitive and you want to be like, if you want to have more control over how your organization actually works, then you should really focus on the small parts that don't work as expected and then replace those. Now in Canada, we have... um a department called Shared Services Canada. I don't know if Mm -hmm. you've had a chance to hear about it or not, but while I'm not in the government myself, my understanding of shared services is to bring together a lot of the things that many other departments across the public service share. For example, like from my understanding, emails, right? Not every single department needs to have its own email servers. We're just gonna put it through Shared Services Canada. Would that be one of your answers to not having a monolithic government or is that part of the problem? Again, a good question. I do think that this is one of the ways how you can solve these things. If you don't have to, if you start building a new service and then you don't have to deal with sending out an email yourself, you're just going to make an API request to this service that is shared and then this sends out the data and then you can get feedback if it was blocked or if it ended up with in spam or, or vice versa. Uh, as long as this is behind APIs, especially open, public, transparent and well-documented APIs, then you can change the whatever is sending out the emails. You will realize that, okay, this becomes too expensive. Maybe it's provided by private sector. It's standardized, but provided by private sector. Then you can have another procurement and find another company can do the same thing for cheaper without you having to change your whole infrastructure. And that this is actually a really good way to go about it. There are obviously some of the systems that are more complex or more complicated than just emails. In Estonia, we're doing something very similar. For example, we're dealing with, for example, the authentication gateway. So, to say, so that you can identify yourself through a single gateway without having all the information systems to rebuild their own authentication methods. We, we, have, we are running, and this is also open source, we're running a, a service that tightly is mapped against our electronic identity solutions. So the identity for mobile, uh, then also for the plastic card that we are using, as well as for private sector solutions such as Smart ID. So because we trust these services, then we have a single gateway where you can authenticate yourself. And then this data is forwarded to the service that you're actually using. And the service itself doesn't have to build it from the ground zero. It's very complicated always to build authentication, even if it just seems that you're just adding your pins or your usernames and passwords. It's very, very complicated. So we are uh, thinking about expanding this beyond to cut down the time where we are rebuilding the standardized stuff over and over again. So uh, in, in a way, the example that you brought regarding the emails is definitely the right one because you already see the potential benefit from it. All of those systems that are using the shared services emails, for example, they don't have to rebuild it from the ground up for themselves, which means it saves taxpayers money, it saves governments money, time and, uh, and uh, patience, I suppose. At the 2019 Ford 50, You said that government should not build apps. The point is to offer services in the the environment that the citizen actually expects. What does that mean exactly? 
I think that my favorite example, especially in 2020, not just because of COVID-19, is that on my phone, I have multiple apps for renting out electric scooters. It, it's rather insane. And if government were to do the same thing so that I would have multiple apps for various different government-related needs, uh, if I have something for my social support, if I have something for my like military service or, or vice versa, it's going to be a mess. So, so I think that the government should really have their services available in any kind of environment. At the moment, we don't really know yet if we're able to do the virtual assistance without having at least a single app, uh, sort of a government sort of assistant on your phone. We're not 100% sure yet. We're talking with big tech. We have no idea if we're able to do it one way or another, if, if Siri is able to directly maybe start the process related to government or not. We're, we are not there yet. We are exploring options and uh, seeing how we can actually do it or not. But I think that it's really important for government to have their services available regardless of the environment where they are at. I think that mobile phones is obviously the closest you can at least today to be to a majority of citizens. Everybody has a phone. Um, some don't have smartphones yet. So digital divide is something that we need to take into account. But uh, overall, I think that pushing out multiple apps and creating a new kind of government digital divide as a result of having multiple apps uh, is not the way forward. The paper itself, I, I, I don't regularly read white papers or vision papers, but I don't think I read anything in there that discusses the relationship or the dynamics between elected officials like members of parliament and the public servants and the, and the bureaucracy itself. Is this because Estonian politicians are not as actively involved in the day-to-day -day affairs of their bureaucracy? Or you just didn't include it because you didn't think it was necessary or, or some other reason? I, I think that the main reason why I didn't really include it um, is, I think, not just twofold, maybe multiple fold. Uh, for one thing, it's a very apolitical paper. Governments change, parliaments change, uh, and the expectations of different public representatives change. They have different ways how they, are, uh, they expect something to happen. But I do think that in terms of technology and focusing on the technology is that regardless what you're wanting to actually do, technology gives you, or the principles for good technology give, give you how you're actually going to do it, regardless what, you're actually, what, what your end goal is. So uh, I, I think that a good government, just as we talked about with uh, Conway's law, is that if government wants to change things, then technology should also be more flexible for this kind of change. So if the general public trusts certain party or certain politicians who have ambitions uh, and are able to fund certain new kind of endeavors, then the technology should be as flexible in order to actually map to them, because that's how cooperation actually happens. If the technology is inflexible, but the politicians want to change various things, then you already see that cooperation doesn't actually work. Then suddenly principles or, or goals for a government cannot be achieved because technology is unable to uh, be flexible enough to support this. We only have about 25 minutes left or so of your time for the episode. And I really do want to get to our mailbag because we got a lot of interesting questions. Now, the first half of this episode was mostly geared to general type questions about your papers. But this mailbag is from hardcore fans of your work that have very specific <laughs> questions about what you've been doing out in Estonia. And the first question comes from John and he asks, 
how does the Estonian culture help with your e-efforts? What do you see as principal challenges translating Estonian initiatives to the North American context where the connection to government is not as strong? That's a good, good question, John. Thank you. Um, I will tackle this with a few comments. For one thing, I think that trust in government is often very, very important and trust in technology is also very important. A few years ago, we had an uh, incident where a security incident related to Estonian uh, EID. And we were really worried that this shakes up, uh, uh, shakes loose the foundational principles and sort of belief into uh, technology that our government provides for its citizens. But reality really was that for some reason, people started using it more. Uh, so even though they knew that there were like problems related to this, we didn't see any any sort of lashback related to this. Some of the comments, obviously, but in reality, uh, we saw that you know everybody accepts that you know stuff can sometimes break and sometimes uh, stuff cannot really work. But in order to get to this point where technology is more widely accepted uh, when it's provided from from government as opposed to, for example, from private sector, is that it's it's all about quality. It's about making something that is valuable for the citizens. When we originally started with our uh, digital identity, at first, the launch, we also made some mistakes. It, it wasn't something that everybody was suddenly now had and then everybody could use. We just had a plastic card. Yes, you can sign documents with it, but in your day-to-day -day life, you didn't really do much with it. It wasn't until we paired it with private sector services, such as uh, banking, once people started using the digital identity with banking, which is incredibly sensitive issue for most people, they wanted to be very secure, very safe. Then everything sort of launched. So you suddenly started giving citizens value that they didn't have before, of course, with cooperation with private sector. But that's how we actually got to them. This, this is how actually we made a difference. And it wasn't, you know, that can, can I trust my government? Uh, it was really like that the solutions that were done were just high quality. And, and if you provide quality services, then trust comes from there. Lorna asks, how much of Estonia's success is due to their having pretty much a green field when the Soviet Union dissolved? Again, a great question. Um, I, I do think that this is one of the benefits. I think that Whenever someone asks me what are the core reasons behind the success of Estonia, then I'm saying three things. For one, that we were a wild west after the collapse of Soviet Union. So we had the freedom to inherit certain laws or principles and sort of and also build from ground up something else. Then we are also small enough that we can actually kick off initiatives nationwide. At least that was true 20 years ago. And then third, that we are large enough for people and other governments to care and pay attention. So these three things. And I do think that it's, it's a very, very difficult situation if you don't have this Wild West to sort of see how you can do a digital transformation as fast, as quickly. It's an incredible challenge because now Estonia is a government such as any other government. We already have stuff in place. We don't have the Wild West anymore. Whenever sometimes... Uh, Whenever the electric scooters appeared uh, in on Estonian streets, again there was a regulation nightmare. Everybody was like just looking like, what what is legal? What would the speeds be? Uh, is it safe? Should they drive uh, on pathways or not? So I think that these kind of things are still going to happen. 
in order to create an environment where you can build new services that take into account the freedoms of this kind of wild west, you need to uh, have smaller scopes at first. So in, in the case which I've example, uh, exemplified before is that if you want to launch a new service, start small, start, start with a single city or a single district where there are less dependencies with the big picture. And then once you have technology in place and you can prove that it actually works, then you can sort of see what you need to change in terms of the laws and regulations. Because laws and regulations by themselves should not be the driving force for technology. It should be always the other way around. If you have a new kind of technology that, that becomes apparent, then you sort of create, need to create a framework that supports this or maybe banishes it. It's, it's also entirely likely, but always technology and innovation always comes first. And you need to create environments where you can try these things out at a small scale, where you can then see if it could be viable for your country uh, nationwide. Skadra asks, as a Lithuanian and by extension Baltic, I often wonder, what's up with Latvia and Lithuania? Specifically, what regional context am I missing? The tabula rasa, the political conditions of the 90s referenced in the paper that provided the blank slate in designing, building, and deploying government services, also applied to Lithuania and Latvia. Can you talk past, present, and future of digital government transformation across the Baltics? This is such a loaded question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And, but of course, incredibly interesting one. I, I can give some of my own uh, personal thoughts regarding this. I think that a lot of the thanks for this tabula rasa and, and our exploratory research and sort of applied technology uh, for our government uh, is thanks to a lot of government initiatives that we had uh, in the 90s and late 90s and the early 2000s, uh, where essentially it was a very strong push for more digitalized government. Uh, I'm not up to date as much with uh, what, what the neighboring countries um, had been doing at the time and how much of a core principle for uh, Lithuania or Latvia was at that time. But this was definitely something that was inspiring for Estonia. Like up to our president, we had initiatives that, are, that were being run and principles that were being driven in order for us to actually build a new kind of value in a country where we don't really have valuable minerals or, or large-scale uh, valuable physical resources where most of the value comes from being more digital and uh, providing better services. So um, I think that played a huge role. Other than that, in terms of like, as, as in the end here, you were asking about what would be the past, present and future there. Uh, I think the future is that just because Estonia did some things well, uh, I also think that other countries uh, did certain other things well that maybe were not related to digital government, but also uh, in other areas. So I, I don't really think that just because uh, we managed to do certain things in terms of digitalization that, that we somehow did, did everything else also just as brilliantly. But I think that moving forward, we need to realize that a great citizen experience isn't just related to a single country. One of the core stories in my paper is, is about uh, citizens of Estonia visiting the country of Finland and requiring services there that's actually functioning cross-border. And I think that the whole concept of border and services is something that is going to be a core focus for, I think, the next few decades. Because we need to find a way how we can create a better 
service for not just a certain citizen in a certain physical location, but I think overall, when you're traveling, when you're abroad, when you're dealing with uh, European Union, for example, if, if you need to get benefits uh, or, or if you're visiting a country there, I, I think that this cross-border data exchange becomes a very crucial issue there. But at the same time, we also know that it cannot become a new kind of monolith. We know that every government still wants a freedom in having their own infrastructure, their own service or their own private sector providing solutions the way they find uh, more beneficial, which means that I think that the core principle that we are pushing in the last few years, even talking with European Council, is that technology by itself should be optional, uh, but standards should become mandatory so that you agree upon certain standards of data exchange and you can also provide the tools but government is still free to have their own infrastructure and stack in their own way. But if you're changing data, then you should rely on commonly agreed upon standards. Well, this is a perfect segue to our next question because Dino asks, how did Estonia get government buy-in for standardizations that allows departments and agencies to share sign-in information in databases, which leverage each other's systems, talk to each other, and stop duplication of systems and siloed computing. Basically, I guess, and this is a very big thing, like what was, what was your sales pitch to all these departments to start you know, working together? Um, thankfully, I was pretty young at that time, slightly older now, so I wasn't there when it happened. But I do think that what the sales pitch really was, was somewhat similar to what I explained previously is that you're getting more freedom to maintain your own systems because they are not centralized. You, you can still do your own domain the way you want. As long as you follow the general principles and guidelines for data exchange within a government. And uh, XROAD as such was something that was essentially made the only mandatory, only way for sharing uh, data between different administration sectors. So you, you, you had no other alternative. You couldn't do it the other way, which meant that you had the inconvenience of having to use XROAD. So, so the idea of XROAD really was that uh, we made it possible to have government services decentralized. So you could have your police run their own information systems. You could then have your health run their own information systems in whichever way they wanted. But... Uh, in order for them to cooperate, because for the perspective of citizen, uh, it's not just about the single government office. In order for them to exchange data, such as sharing your address information, then the only way to do it was to do it over XROAD. So this is how we actually solved this. But we made it mandatory. And it, we made it mandatory by law and regulation, which meant really that there was no other way. If we look at other countries that uh, have tried out XROAD so far, such as Finland, Finland hasn't made it mandatory, which also means that the use of it is much, much less because there are some kind of complications related to this. It's, it's much more difficult to get working, but difficulties are due to the value it actually brings in terms of security and uh, integrity. So in Estonia, that's how it actually worked. Uh, and having learned the lesson from this, because this is a technology that we're applying, not standards, We've realized, and we have tried to push this uh, much larger in Europe uh, overall, we've realized that, you know, because we are pushing technology uh, rather than standards, then we need to sort of take a little bit step back and start pushing standards and techno making technology optional. That uh, let's have common agreements for data exchange, not just within a 
government and within a country and between administration sectors, but also internationally cross-border, let's agree upon standards, but then provide maybe optional tools that are uh, compliant to those standards. I think there's another episode that we're going to need to do because the issue of standardization is something that we can really explore because a lot of the times the argument is, well, our agency or our government is unique and and there's also um, philosophical differences, you know, first name, surname, that kind of stuff. Uh, and when it comes to standardization and, and debates and conversations, and I think we can maybe unpack that conversation at another time because we only have a handful of minutes left and there's, we, there's at least three more questions we need to go through. And we're going to stick with X-Roads here. And Mike asks, at Ford 50, you said that you only spent, you've only spent five minutes of your life doing taxes because of the streamlined, pro- streamlined process that the X-Roads has made possible. Are you able to calculate the savings this type of streamlining has brought to all Estonians? How much more creative would 1 million people be if they didn't have to stress out about submitting their taxes every bloody year? Yeah, uh, I don't have these uh, numbers. There are actually websites that uh, I, I can perhaps share later on that you can maybe share on Twitter that uh, show the potential time saved as a result of using X-Roads. And this is very, very interesting. It's obviously sometime uh, like a little bit like an advertisement, but reality really is that it, it shows how much this has actually saved time for us. But I, I think that my one of my core things that I've said, I think in 450 as well, is that the main principle that we really need to follow and main reason how we really should use technology is to automate all of those routines, all of the boring stuff so that we can do the creative stuff. Uh, even if the creative stuff means being lazy, it's perfectly <laughs> fine. If, if for some reason now you don't need to do the boring stuff and then you can be lazy, maybe you will come up with some new kind of idea or the next uh, uh, next startup idea that got good break rounds that otherwise you would not have thought about because we're doing the routine boring stuff. I think this is really about maximizing the potential. If we're able to automate all of those routines, then we can maximize the potential of uh, more creative and more free time for the citizen of Estonia as much as possible. After this, how to actually get even more free time or more uh, options, more creativity going, I don't really know yet because we still have to automate a lot of those routines. But uh, the tax, uh, five-minute taxes is, is one of my favorite examples because I've looked at comedy shows of Great Britain that have sometimes made fun of how long taxes take or in the United States, you know, doing taxes is, a, is this funny thing that everybody makes fun of. It takes so much time and then you need to do a lot of paperwork when reality is I could never relate to it. I, I never understood. <laughs> the first time I had to declare taxes, it was already automated. So I, I couldn't relate to it. I was like, Oh, but I remember this show. It, it looked really funny and it looked really complicated. What should I really do? And then for me, it was like a few minutes later. And I was like, is that it? And, <laughs> and yeah, I, I could really not relate to this. But yeah, I think many things should be this way. Yeah, many of us listening right now are envious and jealous of you. And, and maybe as part of our standardization, if we do get a chance to do a standardization episode, we can talk also about a flat tax system and make things <laughs> real simple for everybody. The next question comes from Ushnish, and he asks, how has Estonia achieved or maintained equity goals in implementation of technology solutions? For example, 
are the technologies equitably beneficial for all Estonians, including women and individuals on the LGBTQ spectrum, disabled Estonians, ethnic minorities, such as Russians? Again, a very loaded question. Uh, what I can say here is that uh, we take accessibility very seriously, not just because, you know, this is what Europe expects, but also uh, what our government expects. So I think that taking all of those things into account is very, very important. Other than that, I think that technology should also be designed in a way that it supports uh, all the various groups and all the various needs that people might have. And I think that virtual assistance is a much, much uh, closer way to support all this because you can just talk to your phone. It, it already feels more natural than having to log into an information system and using your plastic card, entering pins, finding the right form and looking at all the help text in order to get the result where you want. When in reality, you should just talk with your government just like you would talk with your phone. Our last question comes from Tracy. What would be your advice on scaling your system to Canada? And by that, I mean Canada is unique in that it has two official languages with many different First Nation, Métis, and Inuit populations, and a thriving immigration program in addition to possessing one of the largest land masses with an unevenly distributed population and unevenly distributed internet infrastructure. I must admit that I absolutely love your audience. It would be incredibly fun to just spend a long evening uh, at the dinner with them. These are really, really good questions. And I, I think that I've answered part of it earlier. I, I think that you need to, in order to address a situation where you are so huge and you have so many different needs and you have different cultures and, and you have different languages, you need to still, still sort of start small. You need to focus in. If maybe sometimes uh, you're doing a, a service that in Canada's case might be in French and then might be in English as another service that might be in English, then that's perfectly fine. You, you should really just try out small instead of trying to take the whole thing into account at first, because this is where usually people blow up because it's almost impossible to design any kind of service by taking the whole world into account. You sort of need to start small and you need to create an environment where you can experiment uh, with these solutions uh, really small. In order to involve the Canada, like the wider population of Canada, uh, I do think that this experimentation needs to take place in different districts, different states and in different regions of Canada in order for everybody to sort of feel involved, but also taking into account the lessons of a different region and different cultural background, because then you can get a certain idea of what those citizens might expect, even though you're trialing out a different kind of service of them. Uh, it needs certain coordination, for, both from technology, but also from the digitalization standpoint that brings the big picture together. But the big picture doesn't come together from the ground up. It comes uh, from all of those little details and trials and little uh, smaller scopes. I just think that oftentimes we dare not to try to build better services and build the next generation stuff because we fear that it's a too big of an ask. 
But in reality, if we take it into very small, minuscule parts, then they are maintainable. And I do believe that, uh, especially well-digitalized uh, governments such as Canada is, and a lot of stuff that you're also doing is is looking a lot of uh, a lot forward. I suppose sometimes uh, software ways such as with podcasts, but also in in more uh, direct government initiatives, it's very valuable. I think that we should really just keep up with this kind of approach and just try to see what next generation government services really should be like. Um, real, real quick, I'm curious to know, does Estonia have large pockets where the internet infrastructure is not present? Uh, we are dealing with the concept that we called last mile uh, as well. I think a lot of countries do. When, when I'm still taking a train from one end of Estonia to another end of Estonia, sometimes I do have connectivity drops. Might not be with all the service providers. We have covered majority of the country with internet. Uh, this has already happened. So technically, it's already everywhere, just depending on the devices that you're actually using. And this is obviously the goal. If we are trying to start providing virtual assistance everywhere, then we need to have internet connectivity as wide as possible uh, also everywhere. But this is, again, where you know the benefits of Estonia come in. We are such a small country. It's much easier for us to do it as opposed to uh, for Canada to do it. But again, I think that it's well worth the investment. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's a big issue in Canada the, to have the kind of government we want, the sort of lowest common denominator, the baseline, the foundation is that everyone needs to have equal access to broadband. Um, now, we are right up on our allotted time with you. But I do want to give you the opportunity to talk about anything that we haven't had a chance to talk about that's very near and dear to you uh, before we close out the episode. All right. Um, I do have a few things that, that maybe give some ideas for everybody to think about that is responsible for building those services uh, or that is involved or that, that maybe is a citizen that, that wants or expects more from the government, any kind of government or any kind of, even including private sector. I, I think that we have to dare to think about what we are actually, like, what do we actually want? Uh, it, it's a common misconception, or at least a common fault, that if you ask someone where do they want to live, then often people take into account where they're living today, and then they add some stuff to it. Some stuff more ambitious, some stuff a little less, because they think about sort of short-term gain. They think about something where they could, but possibly be in five years' time, so often this means that they want to live maybe in a more greener environment. Maybe they want a more quieter environment, slightly larger apartment, maybe a room or two extra. Maybe they want a yard. But if you then ask them that, yes, this is a good, good answer, but where do you actually want to live? And if you ask this question enough times, then you will actually get to the real truth. Maybe they instead want to live near a lake at a cabin house and they have a large yard for their all of their animals and their family and then their family lives right nearby and so on and so forth. So I think that people often uh, are too safe in their ambitions. If we, it's, it sounds uh, corny, but if we dare to dream beyond, if we dare to dream something, how we're actually expecting how government should work and how the services should be provided, then the steps that we make, even starting tomorrow, are much, much closer towards this actual very ambitious moonshot type of vision than they would be if the goal would be far more safe. So 
the story of, of like that, that I'm basing on the next generation government architecture document is incredibly ambitious one. It assumes that two countries are able to exchange data between themselves in a fluid manner for you to provide a multi-layered service from transportation to location detection, to data exchange, to hospital data, the actual birth and naming the child. It's incredibly long road to actually get there. But if we don't have this vision in our mind, like, like this is what we actually want to achieve, then we are not actually going to get there. We're going to make too safe, too small increments, too, too small improvements to where we are today. And I do think that just not just in, in government, but overall, we have to have these ambitious uh, goals that are driving every single step that we're actually doing. And this is very valuable. And of course, not just for governments, but also in private life. Like uh, if, if you end... Uh, if you stop listening to this podcast today and and maybe you have thought about like what kind of job you would want to do or, or where you would you want to actually or what would you want to actually achieve in your everyday work, then just you know dare to dream a little bit bigger and and make this very ambitious moonshot type of goal uh, your target and then make decisions accordingly. So this applies really universal to everybody. But this was a core principle for uh, this technology vision paper as well. It's like, if this is our ambitious goal, if this is the story that we want to actually tell in five to 10 years time, then what are the technology, what are the technology layers that we have to do in order for us to get there? If it is viable, if it is actually possible. So a lot of the hypotheses that we've set up are exactly for this purpose, to see what works, what doesn't, but we know that the vision is still the same. Until sometimes says, you know, there, there's even better vision for it. But uh, for now, we would like government services to provide it in a more natural way that takes into account the immediate needs of a citizen in both cases of uh, crisis as well as regular everyday situations. Well, I definitely like the be ambitious element of the paper and the work you've done. And I'm seeing... While this is an audio podcast, we're speaking with a video feed, and I'm seeing in the background an image of C-3PO, the Star Wars reference, and I'm going to make an, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make an assumption that you you're, you're familiar with Star Trek: The Next Generation. Yeah, and I'm a big, huge fan of TNG. And one in one episode, they they meet a peoples, and there's it's, it's a bit of a throwaway line. It it doesn't really land. It's not part of the plot necessarily. But I use it as a personal mantra of mine, which is um, the saying for these peoples was uh, dream not of today, right? Which is, I think, uh, something that a lot of people fall into. Like, yeah. I, I want a bigger house now, but what do you want, say, 20 years from now? What kind of government do you want in the future kind of deal, I think, relates a little bit to your, your parting words. So um, dream not of today. So thank you, Crystal, so much for joining us today. Thank you. And uh, being so insightful with, with your answers and patient with my lack of knowledge about the great work you're doing. And as usual, uh, I want to thank our audience for listening. And please leave us a rating or a comment on how we can make the podcast better or if there's any guests or any, or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open. <laughs>